is Australia. This fucking language. Let there be a thousand blossoms blooms for a time But I ain't spending any time on it. Don't stop wearing the speedos. You're listening to Decode, the Batuta Advocates podcast series for those Australians who have tuned out or never tuned in to the dark arts of federal politics. It's called being, you wouldn't believe it, a goddamn bloody adult. Welcome back to the Batuta Advocates Decode podcast. You're joined today by your host, Clancy Overall and Errol Parker. How are you, Errol? Keeping dry? I'm keeping dry, mate. Keeping dry out here in the Diamond Tennis Shires. Pretty easy, mate. Not as easy as it is in our state's lovely southeast corner at the moment, though. Yeah, it's been an unprecedented month of natural disasters down the east coast. From Gympie to Lismore to the Hawkesbury River out the back of Sydney, there's been a lot of pain and strife. You didn't have to look too far to see that. It was on almost every screen, every newspaper across this country. And uh, the rains and floods have been so devastating that it's even convinced our Prime Minister to start talking about this changing climate. It's something he's been very reluctant to do until now. And with the changing climate comes new responsibilities for our federal politicians. One cabinet MP that has been getting a lot more airtime than others lately is the Minister for Emergency Management, Senator Bridget McKenzie. However, with everything that's been going on, there's very few windows to um, interview such an important uh, member of the coalition. We've been struggling to pin her down. So today we're going to speak to the man that wants to take her job from her, the Shadow Minister for Labor, Senator Murray Watt. Thank you for joining us today on Decode. G'day, boys. Good to talk to you. Now, we'll get into the roles and responsibilities that kind of come with being in charge of emergency management a bit later on. To begin with, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you based? Yeah, so I'm a Brizzy boy, much like you, Clancy, or at least you've passed through Clancy uh, to, through Brizzy at different times in your life. I've lived in Brisbane all but two years. I lived in Melbourne for a couple of years. So I live in Brisbane with my family. I have my office on the Gold Coast, but being a senator, my electorate's the whole state. So I spend a lot of time in places like the Diamantina and further north as well. So it's a good job. It gets you out and about right across the state. So what drew you to the Labor Party as a uh, school captain of Brisbane State High into law student, how would you say, uh, high-performing inner-city rat, capital city <laughs> kid? What drew you to the Labor Party? It, it doesn't really sound like they were cutting too much sugar cane down there on Buddy Vulture Street. <laughs> if you think I'm high-performing, you've been speaking to the wrong people, I reckon. But uh, yeah, no, I, I did manage to go to State High, which was a great high school and learnt a lot there. But I suppose my politics really come from my family, like a lot of people. Uh, So my father's side of the family are actually from around Mackay, from a farming background. And not surprisingly, most of them were National Party voters. Mm -hmm. But my mum's side of the family were staunch Labor people, mainly from the Darling Downs originally. And then they moved into Brisbane. So like a lot of kids, I suppose, politics was something that came up around the dinner table. And I had a couple of great uncles in particular, and my grandfather were really influential and I was one of those nerds when I was younger. I was pretty interested in politics and uh, I used to love sitting around the table, catching up with them and hearing what they had to say. And I suppose I was young enough then that it was still in the days of Joe Bajocchi Peterson in Queensland and he was a pretty dominant personality and there was no way I was going to come out of my family and support the conservative side of politics after everything I'd heard about Joe. Some rather strong language, you reckon, around the yeah. dinner table about Joe. There was a little bit of strong language. that You, you wouldn't think that 80-year-old men in Toowoomba could swear that much, but when you get <laughs> talking about Joe Bajocchi-Peterson, they could get going. <laughs> 
Now, Murray, it seems like the only left-leaning politician in Queensland who didn't work for Morris Blackburn Lawyers is Bob Catter. What's with the place? Yeah, well, I always wonder whether Morris Blackburn maybe should have made uh, Bob Catter an honorary consultant or something like that just to complete the club. Either that or the Queensland bar. (laughs) (laughs) That's right, that's right. Wouldn't he be a sight to behold at the barristers' table? (laughs) Yeah, no, look, there are a lot of Morris Blackburn people from Queensland and, in fact, across the country who've ended up in politics. And I suppose it's because, you know, the kind of work that Morris Blackburn does, their slogan is, we fight for fair. And I had the great fortune to work there a couple of times fighting for fair. And I suppose that's what I and some of the other Morris Blackburn people now do in federal parliament as well. So I think... You know, you wouldn't want a parliament full of lawyers, but it's kind of helpful to have a background in the law at times. And, you know, in some ways, what I do now in federal politics is a bit of a continuation of what I've been doing my whole career, sort of as an advocate for people who need help in our community, whether it be workers or refugees or unions or or others. And that's what we try and do day in, day out in federal parliament as well. So you started off at state level as a member of the Bligh government, am I correct there? You're up there in Peter Dutton country, actually, at a state level. And prior to the pandemic, I guess, the states have really lifted uh, during the pandemic and during all these disasters. But prior to that, not many people across Australia, particularly in Queensland, really thought there was much point to having a state government. You know, a lot of people, no one knew their local member. They just went and voted for whatever colour looked nice on the day. Can you tell me what you actually did for three years down there in Riverside or wherever the hell the parliament is nowadays? I reckon I had one of the briefest stints as a state politician the country has ever seen, a glorious three years. I had the good fortune to get into state politics just when the tide was going out on the Labor Party. So the uh, electorate I represented was the state seat of Everton, which is, if anyone knows Brisbane, it's sort of the mid-northern suburbs. And you're right, most of it was in Peter Dutton's electorate. So I used to have to go along to school assemblies and listen to Peter Dutton sing the national anthem, which was always a pretty interesting experience. (laughs) But yeah, it was good working going into state parliament. And I'd worked for Anna Bly as her chief of staff for quite a number of years before that. But the reality was we're on the way out and it was a pretty difficult three years. We were all fighting with each other, fighting with unions. And it it sort of distracted from some of the good things that we were doing because, you know, I think the government had done some really good things in education reform and health reform and stuff like that. But sometimes when your time is up, there's nothing you can do about it and you just get washed out with the tidal wave. And that's what happened to me and a whole bunch of other people as well. And it also happened with the government that replaced you uh, almost one term. Was it one term later? Uh, yeah. Campbell was a flash in the pan as well. There were erratic voters up there in Queensland, Murray. Yeah, we're, we're a volatile bunch. You know, <laughs> when, when we deliver a message to a government, we deliver it in no uncertain terms. So... They had the baseball bats out for us in 2012 and then they had the same baseball bats out for Campbell Newman. I'll never forget, I did a lot of campaigning in Townsville for that 2015 election when Campbell Newman lost and I remember calling people, asking them to vote for Labor and all I had to do was say, how do you feel about Campbell Newman? And I basically would have to take the phone half a metre away from my head because people just went off. So we do swing around a bit and I suppose at a federal level, that's obviously what we're hoping will happen this time around as well. So... The baseball bats is an interesting thing because we haven't really seen the baseball bats come out for a while outside of these McGow and Palaszczuk elections. We haven't seen the baseball bats come out to get rid of someone. I mean, I mean Palaszczuk and uh, McGowan only confirmed the positions by landslide, but we really have probably not since Campbell have we seen someone just get the punt. What had Campbell done that had put him on the nose and made people want change? Because as we're seeing amongst voters, a lot of people don't want change. And, and particularly when, when times are tough, people kind of want some sort of continuity. Yeah, well, I think 
Campbell's problem, we had a couple of problems. One is that every morning he seemed to take a whole handful of angry pills and go out and pick fights with as many people as he possibly could that day. Mm. But also I think because they did have such an enormous majority, I think they just were so cocky and they thought they'd be there for years and they could do whatever they want, uh, whatever they wanted, offend as many people as they wanted. And, of course, they paid a price for that three years later. So, you know, it's it sort of feels like it's a long time ago now, but when you remember back to that, he... I think he sacked something like 14,000 publicans, including thousands of nurses. Uh, he took on the legal profession. He took on the medical profession. So even groups who'd traditionally been pretty supportive of the Liberal Party, he went to war with them. And I think, you know, you're right. We, what we've the bikies. Seen, he came the, for yeah, the bikies. He, he went after the bikies <laughs> as well. And, you know, they know, to ha- they know how to handle themselves. I think they even engaged PR consultants at the time to try to knock over Campbell, <laughs> uh, which is pretty interesting. But, yeah, and I suppose that's the difference compared to what politics has been like, especially at the state level the last few years. You've had probably more moderate governments from probably from both parties um, who listen a lot more to the people. And I, and I think I think that's something that all of us in Queensland Labor learned from losing in 2012 and then from watching Newman lose is that you've got to listen to people, you've got to take them with you, and the minute you don't, they'll turn around and kick you up the butt. Your time in state politics ends as a result of, you know, um, Campbell Newman coming through mm. uh, 2013. It's not until 2016 where you kind of made your move into federal politics uh, as a senator this time. What did you do for three years? That's what we want to know. We know what Mark Latham did between leading the Labor Party and and then joining uh, One Nation in the New South Wales Upper House. He went on Sky News a lot. And And he certainly didn't get any taxis because none of them would stop for him anymore. (laughs) What does uh, Senator Murray Watt do in between the big jobs? Yeah, well, I I also didn't go and get myself a crew cut like Mark Latham did after he lost as well. So whatever Mark Latham does, I try to do exactly the opposite. But yeah, look, I think Immediately after I lost, actually, it was a pretty difficult time for a few months, but Morris Blackburn were really good enough to take me back on. And I'll be honest with you, I I had worked as a lawyer for quite a few years before I went into politics and went into being an advisor. And when I left law, I probably thought I wasn't going to do it again. And to be honest, it was one of my only options that I had, but it turned out really well. And um, I really enjoyed the work that it there. I, I worked in class actions, which I'd never done before and uh, got involved in some campaigns that the firm was involved in around work cover law protection, uh, that Newman was trying to take people's legal rights away to sue if they got injured at work. So I helped out on that. And I also got really involved in some refugee legal work, um, which was really rewarding. And it was actually Scott Morrison was the immigration minister at the time. So we were sort of going to war with him on a daily basis, both in the courts and the media, about uh, particularly some kids who'd been born in Australia to families who'd come here from uh, by boat. And that was a really contentious issue at the time. And that was the kind of really interesting and rewarding work that the firm was involved in. So while I didn't want to go back there uh, initially, I had a really good time. But I think for me, being involved in politics is sort of the way that you can create bigger change. And that's why I was keen to get back into it if I had another chance. So how did the opportunity to get uh, arguably the most plum job in Australia, which is to be a senator. (laughs) How did that opportunity present itself to you? Yeah, it is a really good job that I'm very lucky to have, uh, and I thank people for that every single day. I suppose for me, having been involved in state politics one way or another, either as an advisor or as a member, I'd been doing it for about 10 years, and uh, I was sort of early 40s uh, around the time that I lost, and I suppose for me, I felt like if I was going to do politics, I needed to do something different and have a bit of a new challenge. And 
I mean, I think federal politics is obviously really interesting, the kind of issues that you deal with, whether it be disaster management or foreign affairs or the economy or whatever. And I was kind of keen to get into it. And we were coming up to a point where we were going to be having pre-selections for the Senate. And I put my hand up for that because, as I say, I sort of felt like I had something to offer and I was keen to give it a go. And And I think going into federal politics, I was actually really attracted to the idea of going in as a small fish in a really big pond, because I think whatever you do in life, it's always good to keep learning. And I sort of felt that if I went back and did state politics again, you know, I'd probably keep doing similar things to what I'd done before. And I wanted to try something different. And I suppose, you know, learn from a, you know, a different group of people, the likes of Albo and Penny Wong and Tanya Plibersek and people like that. So when the opportunity came along, I grabbed it and there was a pre-selection and then an election and now here I am and having a ball. So Albanese's since bumped you up into his shadow ministry. As we said at the start of this uh, interview, you're, you're the man coming for Senator Bridget McKenzie's most recent portfolio, which is that of disaster management, emergency management. What do you think Labor's chances are in May? In an honest, we, we asked Albanese this too, and he gave us a well, pretty it, candid. He was answer. confident, but he gave us some seats that he thought were going to flip in their favour. This was a, mm. a fair few months ago now. What do you think your chances are? I know you got to stay positive, but what is it looking like to you? Yeah, well, I probably need to say word for word what Albo said, otherwise I'll lose my job. Won't I? Um, that's, but um, no broad no. church here, mate. mate <laughs> he isn't your boss, mate. We are the people of Queensland. <laughs> that's true. Today, at least, I'll, I'll try to keep you guys happy. No, look, I'm, I'm certainly hopeful about the coming election, but I think all of us in Labor remember that we thought we were going to win the last election as well, and it didn't turn out that way. Uh, all the polls had us winning, and I remember all through the campaign, I didn't feel at the time that I was cocky, but looking back on it, I think we probably all were, including myself, and we're not going to make that mistake again. So we're going to be really hungry and work hard every single day, but you know, as I travel around Queensland and I've obviously been spending a fair bit of time in northern New South Wales lately with the floods, I was up in the Northern Territory this week. So I get around a fair bit and wherever I go, people are really off ScoMo. I felt it really started turning against him towards the end of last year and it's only got worse ever since then. And I think people are just over him. I think they're over the lies. I think they're over the the bullshit photo opportunities and I think they want someone to be straight with them. So I'm certainly hopeful and I'm certainly hopeful that we can pick up some seats in Queensland because we did really badly here last time. But we're all very conscious that uh, the only day that matters is polling day. As someone who obviously, you know, you can see the two spectrums in your own family. You know, you've got the Nat, you know, up in Mackay, you've got that family up north and then you, your mother's, you know, staunch Labor side. What do you do when you're out and about, and I'm sure it has happened to you in northern New South Wales, when you run into someone who just cannot concede on their beliefs? Tell us about it. Have you gotten a few sprays? How does it work when you're out there in your role representing something that people detest? Uh, I do get my share of sprays, and um, (laughs) I've got to the point where I have to warn my office when I'm going on to do a Sky News interview because they'll get a barrage of calls from people who (laughs) hate everything I have to say, uh, so I have to give a bit of forewarning. (laughs) And, in fact, when I was heading down to Lismore, the very day I, I pulled in to get petrol on the way into the Gold Coast, and a bloke there, a truckie, recognised me and he said, you're that Murray Watfella, aren't you? And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, he, and I'd been in the media that day complaining about ScoMo and the floods and uh, he said, just lay off ScoMo. He's a good bloke. Lay off him. <laughs> so, yeah, people, he was very friendly about it, but you do cop it from time to time. But I think in some ways maybe the family upbringing I have, 
you know, with different sort of views in it probably did help me to become a bit more sort of understanding of both sides of the argument. I mean, I'm, you know, I play politics as hard as the next person and, you know, I'm very sort of solid about my views, but I think it always does help to understand that there's people with different views. And frankly, the challenge you've always got in politics is that it's not enough just to get the people who always vote Labor to vote for you. You've got to try to appeal to people who don't as well. So, you know, working out how you best put an argument to appeal to people's beliefs and their values, you know, is an important part of the job. And yeah, I think probably the family upbringing I had, and uh, I lived in suburban Brisbane, you know, you know, pretty mainstream sort of neighbourhood Mansfield where there's people with all sorts of different views. City Point College, with. baby. Yeah, yeah. well, there's, it's, uh, there are certainly some very interesting views in Mansfield these days. Even when I was growing up, some of those views were around, but it seems to have got even more intense. But I was pleased to see that the vast majority of people thought that that was the wrong way for City Point to go, and hopefully they've learned something from it. <laughs> Well, you, you talked before about working under Bly and how, you know, the tide was coming out as you got in there mm. and everyone was fighting with each other. You were fighting with the unions. This has traditionally been the reputation Labor has. They might not have it at a federal level at the moment, even though there has been some, you know, attempts at division in the last few weeks from Certain Credlin anyway. Media. All those Sky yeah. News are trying to say that you're all fighting with each other, but that doesn't seem to show to the everyday kind of... Uh, if you are, you're all hiding it well. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Tell us, though, like, it can't be that good. It, it can't be that as peachy as it is now. We see Penny, we see Albo, we see Tanya, we see everyone. We see Shorten and, and Albo, you know, men who we know were gunning for each other's jobs at one point. How, yeah. do, you, how do you deal with that in-house? You've got a lot of you there. You've got a lot of – I know this is very much a, a coalition issue, the ambition where everyone wants to be prime minister, but you do have a lot of egos and a lot of different opinions. Yeah, look, and at times it can be challenging and, you know, there are different people in the Labor Party with different views on, and let's face it, politics attracts people with strong opinions and you wouldn't want it to be any different. You don't want, you know, people to be really bland in politics as, you know, some would argue that I am and others are and we want less of that. So I think, you know, we we have formal processes to manage that sort of debate and even recently, you know, our, our caucus, so the meeting of all the federal Labor MPs meets once a week when Parliament sits and there are times that we have pretty robust debates. We had one recently about the religious discrimination bill and everyone got to put their position and there were different views about that, but everyone stuck together to the decision that we made. And I think maybe that is something that's different about Labor compared to the other parties is that, you know, Labor is about the collective, about working together, sticking together. And, you know, that's the view of the union movement as well, workers coming together to advance their their issues. And, you know, we don't always manage to pull it off, but I think generally speaking, we do try to work as a team because we believe people get further in life if they work as a team. And that is different to the Liberals and the Nationals who, you know, are more about individuals and they sometimes pay a price for that, like what we're seeing with them now splitting off just today. You know, we've had... Liberal and National Party MPs at the state level in New South Wales come out and bag Scott Morrison and say they wouldn't vote for him, one resigning from Parliament because of the way he's handled the floods. And I don't think you'd get that so much from the Labor Party because we'd probably have a big ding-dong battle behind closed doors, but we'd walk out of it, you know, with the, you know, sticking by each other. The last election, I think when uh, Errol and I saw the wheels starting to shake a little bit on Labor was uh, when we interviewed Tanya Plibersek and we asked her, can you tell us, and I'm going to ask you the same yeah. question, so prepare yourself. We asked her what Labor policy was Labor bringing to that election that she thought people would not like? Because sometimes you have to start talking about things that people don't like. You have to make decisions that are, that are tough. 
what would you say Labor right now heading into the 2022 federal election is working hard to push against the popular sentiment? By the way, probably- by the way, her, her answer was nothing. Everyone's going to love everything, <laughs> yeah. and I, yeah. I, I that wasn't a very which good answer. is almost <laughs> as bad as Chris the Beard Bowen going on on radio saying, "If you don't like our policies, don't vote for us." It's like I, okay, okay, <laughs> yeah. Well, I might not say that, and I reckon Chris probably wouldn't say it again these days either. Um, but. Um, no, look, I, well, I'll probably give you two. I mean, from, from different ends of the political spectrum, there's a lot of people on our sort of, if you like, our left side who think that we have made a mistake in basically agreeing with a range of the tax cuts that the government has made. So we got a lot of flack, whether it be from the Greens Party or even from some of our own members for going along with that. But I think one of the things that we learned from the last election was that We need to demonstrate that we're economically responsible. Australians don't like the idea of voting for massive tax increases. And I think you've got to learn from your mistakes in the past when you're just a bit too ambitious for people. So that's a policy that we've taken that, you know, is not going to be popular with some parts of our voting base. And then on the other side of it, I was actually just doing an interview this morning with uh, the ABC and Mackay about casualisation, which is a really big problem in so many industries and up there, particularly in the mining industry. So in the coal mining industry, you've got lots and lots of people these days who are hired as labour hire casuals and they don't have permanent work, they don't have job security, they've got lower incomes than permanent workers and we've said that we would fix that and I know that there are employer groups out there who don't like that and they see that that's a cost to their business. But what we've seen in Australia over the last few years is that people's wages just are not rising. Everything is going up except people's wages. And we've got to do something about that kind of casualisation and job security if we're going to be able to give people the bargaining position to get themselves decent wage rises. So, you know, on both sides of it, left and right, there are policies that we're offering that people aren't happy with. But I think it just comes back to making sure that whatever policies you're putting forward uh, really line up with what Labor stands for. And, And I feel like we do this time around. I think one of the biggest issues coming into this election particularly this time, is is the national issue of housing affordability mm-hmm. and the fact that if you're born in the wrong postcode to the wrong parents, the chances of you owning a house anywhere in this country is, is drastically reduced. What is Labor going to do to basically make it easier for people, for any ordinary Australian to buy a home, to, to be able to afford to live while also protecting these investments made by the people up on the hill at fucking Ascot and Hendra and around the, you know, all, all those people. Well, yeah, look, housing affordability has become a huge problem in Australia. And, you know, it's not a new problem, but I think over the last couple of years it has got worse. And I've got younger friends of mine along with the younger members of my staff who've been trying to buy a home or even an apartment for a very long time and just cannot get in the market. You know, when they turn up to an auction, there's 40 other people there who've got more money than them and can bid higher. And it's just becoming harder and harder for people. So one of the things that Labor has announced is really trying to deal with the just the sheer shortage of housing, because that's obviously, you know, the, the fact that they, we haven't got the supply of housing puts a real pressure on the prices as well. So what we've said we would do is create what we're calling a Housing Australia Fund which would basically invest about $10 billion a year 
and use the proceeds to build more affordable homes. And, you know, you would expect a Labor government would invest pretty heavily in public housing or social housing. And that's certainly a component of what we're talking about here for the most disadvantaged in our community. But one of the other things that's new about this is it's also about building affordable homes for essential workers because this is the problem in Australia is that it's got to the point where you can have a full-time job paying a pretty sort of medium sort of income and just cannot afford to buy a home. So what we've said is, yeah, that we'd be building, I think it's 30,000, I didn't brush up on my numbers, but from memory it's 30,000 new social and affordable homes in Australia, which puts more supply in the market and gives more people a chance. And even that funding you know, we want to make sure that it particularly addresses some of the, the specific problems in the housing market. So women and children fleeing domestic violence, they have a particular problem finding homes and crisis accommodation for people and emergency homes for people fleeing DV. That'll be a real focus along with Indigenous uh, housing. As I say, I've just been up in the Northern Territory for a few days and it's a reminder that the conditions Indigenous people live in are just a national disgrace. So we're, we're, we're committing more funding there as well, along with veterans is another group in our community with a really high homelessness rate. And um, some of that package that we put together will be catering to them too. But the bottom line is more homes, uh, both social and affordable, and, uh, and I expect we'll have a bit more to say about that in the run-up to the election as well. Well, aren't we lucky Brisbane's got plenty of swamp land to develop? Mm. <laughs> well, that's something we've got to learn to do a bit differently as well, I suspect. <laughs> now, you've become somewhat of a household name throughout these floods, you know, nationally as the Shadow Minister. Was this the job you wanted? Like, you look back at the last couple of years of disasters – I reckon I'd prefer to be in charge of like something inconsequential if I was in the in the yeah. cabinet, something like industry and innovation, sport. Or, yeah, sport. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, there's the fun portfolios and there's the not so fun portfolios, but it's a really great portfolio. I think you're right. I mean, when when Albo asked me to take this on, I was obviously really grateful for the opportunity, but didn't expect it to become such a massive issue. And I suppose that just reflects the times we're in with climate change becoming more and more real for people. You know, within a few months of taking on this role, we were dealing with the Black Summer bushfires and that Christmas holiday was one I'll never forget because there certainly weren't a lot of holidays <laughs> mixed up in it. And, you know, the, the situation people went through was terrible. And of course, we've now seen these floods as well. So I think one of the things I sort of reflect on is you're often going into regions when they're at their lowest moment where, you know, literally the ground has been destroyed, homes have been destroyed, the emotions are really raw. I went to an evacuation centre in Lismore with our deputy leader, Richard Miles, the first day we were there and people were grieving still and there were people telling us their stories where they literally thought they were going to die in the floods and, you know, that you can't help but be moved by that and be moved to take action. And I suppose that's why I was so angry about the Morrison government being completely MIA uh, through those floods, that there were people who desperately needed help, do not know where they're going to live, have lost their business in some cases, have lost people they're really close to or their pets or their animals. And there was just no one from the government there. So yeah, as I say, if you're someone who cares about people, and I think most of us do, you can't help be moved when you go into those sort of situations being really motivated to try to fix things. That's something I want to quickly ask you. Obviously, we've lit up Morrison. Everyone has, every media outlet. Even the ones that are actively uh, supporting him couldn't help but light him up over the Hawaii bushfire. And this last 
Mutt down there in Lismore and, and, and how long it takes anyone in his government, regardless if he's at home isolating or not, how long it takes to get any action. Can you just clarify this and, and be fair about it? Is this just the time we're living in where we have a 24-hour news cycle so we know where the Prime Minister is at all times? You know, like those Black Saturday bushfires was it down there in Victoria. Kevin made his way down. But, you know, was that a week later? Or is there too much expected of leaders now that we know where they're at at all times? Or do you actually reckon... He's dragging the chain. I think he definitely is dragging the chain. And I think the thing that's most angered people through the floods is that they've seen it happen before. Yep. They saw it happen through the bushfires. And you guys were the ones who, who coined Scotty for marketing and it stuck for a reason because it, it's true. And I think people were just stunned that he didn't seem to learn anything from the bushfires. You know, he went to Hawaii, was missing in action, his office lied about where he was until it was exposed. Well, he doesn't think he did anything wrong. That's what no, the difference I think is. I think that's right. And I think that one of the things we've learned about Scott Morrison is that he just lacks empathy. He just doesn't get it. And, you know, whether we're talking about disaster victims or some of the comments he's made about women, he just doesn't seem to have empathy for other people. And, you know, every interview I did when I was in Lismore about him and the government being missing, I acknowledged that he was in isolation due to COVID and I didn't have a shot at him about not being there in person. But it didn't mean that he couldn't have got other ministers from the government out there on the ground running the show. He could easily have issued a national emergency declaration from his bed if he needed to. It's just that he just seems to have this habit of waiting for problems to become a crisis before he actually takes any action. It's whatever the situation, whether it be the bushfires or the vaccines or the rapid antigen tests or now the floods, it's just always too little too late. And when he does surface from wherever he is, his first instinct is to blame other people, which he's done again with the floods, trying to blame the New South Wales government. And, you know, I think I think people are over it. They just want a leader who takes some responsibility. Do you think that, you know, I know that a lot of people used to give him a lot of stick kind of back in the day, you know, they used to compare him with the likes of Malcolm Fraser and that as being some of the most ill-equipped and poor-performing prime ministers we've ever had. Mm. Do you think that Tony Abbott could have handled this better? <laughs> well, he, he might have at least been able to go and put out a fire, I suppose, mightn't he, uh, having been a volunteer fireman. He was there. He was. All these inner city lefties were chortling on just like, it's like, what do you mean he's there? (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, that's the thing. You you, you can't knock someone who's actually on the ground doing the work, can you? So, look, I think it's not just Tony Abbott. I think most prime ministers we've had in recent years would have actually shown up and would have taken control. And that's what I mean. He seems to lack empathy. He never takes responsibility for a problem. I mean, think about the, you know, I don't hold a hose is the classic example, but the number of times he has been on film saying, that's not my job, that's not my job, that's not my job, whatever the job is, it doesn't seem to be his job. He's the bloody national leader. If these things aren't his job, what is his job apart from marketing? Yeah, so I think most of our PMs, Liberal, Labor, whatever, would have stepped up to the plate and Every single time he steps back. Now, Murray, we're slipping into this um, kind of textbook Labor trope of firing shots from the sideline here. I want to know, as someone with that power, as someone who would have been sent there if a Prime Minister Albanese was at home in isolation, what would have you done from day one in Lismore? The levee breaks. (laughs) What happens? Yeah, well, I think from day one, what was needed was some more resourcing 
to save people, whether it be ADF, SES, whatever. The stories that I heard in Lismore from people having to get out in their own their own tinnies to rescue people because of a lack of resources. I mean, it is a miracle that more people didn't die in those floods, whether it be people trapped in their homes or people having their tinny capsized. You know, we're not talking about Clive Palmer's super yachts being out there picking people up. It was it was eight foot tinnies and you know, dozens or hundreds of people were rescued by their own fellow citizens. So I think we needed to have more people on the ground from day one to help people evacuate. Even days after the flood peaked, people were still having to crowdfund their own helicopters to perform rescues or to do food drops, which is just insane in a first world country. Then the recovery, I think, you know, I think it does really matter to have a visible presence on the ground from senior leaders, if it's not the Prime Minister, then the Deputy or one of the relevant ministers, because it gives people a sense of hope that someone with authority is there watching it with their own eyes, hearing it with their own ears, can get on the phone and demand that certain things happen. So I think we'd just be a lot more present through the disasters so that we can actually get the resources in, whether it be the immediate you know, response and saving people's lives or recovery. But the other big difference that we've put forward if we win the election, is a significant increase in investment in disaster mitigation from the federal government. So investing in things like flood levees, cyclone shelters, bushfire evacuation centres, telecommunications, which all are always up during bushfires and floods. And uh, you might have seen there's been a lot of debate about this emergency response fund that Scott Morrison's got that he set up three years ago to invest in disaster recovery and mitigation, hasn't spent a cent on recovery, hasn't even started building a single disaster mitigation project. And what we've said is that if we're elected, we'll convert that into being 100% about disaster mitigation so that we'll have up to $200 million a year to invest in those things like flood levees, better drainage systems, cyclone shelters, bushfire stuff to keep people safe. And that's something that a whole range of people, whether it be insurers or local governments or even the Productivity Commission, which is a federal government body, was recommending the feds put in $200 million a year into this. They, they said that years ago and we just haven't seen it happen. So, yeah, I think we need to acknowledge that climate change is real. It's going to mean more intense disasters in the future and we need to start investing as well as obviously reducing our emissions um, which is important. We've also got to prepare for the future by investing in that kind of mitigation to keep people safe, keep their properties safe and reduce the huge cost to taxpayers every time there's one of these disasters. Well, it looks like you've got a big job ahead of you, I mean, regardless of whether you're in power in, in, in a couple of months' time because you're going to be making these decisions. And if you're not in power, you're going to be having to go there anyway because it doesn't seem like anyone goes to these things uh, as it currently stands. So it looks like you're going to be the man on the ground regardless of who's in power. So all the best with that. Look after yourself and uh, what's the weather like in Brisbane today? Uh, today's not too bad. It's pretty muggy, mind you, and I was a bit worried that I was already sweating so much at 10 o'clock this morning, so I might have to have a change of shirt before the day's out, I think. Thanks for joining us, Murray. Good to talk to you, fellas. Thanks a lot. <laughs> 